You are watching VidGold. And now, this is The Congoer. So how is everybody? You all right? Everything going good? It's going to be your year. It's going to be your year. Uh, let's see. I, I wanted to talk about uh, how I got into doing stuff. When I was a little kid, um, I used to do voices for any little characters I had, like little, you know, if there's a stuffed bear, I mean, way back to then, and I used to listen to the radio all the time, and uh, that's where I heard so many voices, and, you know, I watched early television, and, uh, of course, the cartoons, Mel Blanc and everything, and I um, was influenced, but I didn't think I would ever wind up doing stuff like that. I wanted to be a musician, I couldn't wait to get out of high school. Uh, you know, so I could join a band and go just like see the world and stay up till 3 a.m. and you know, puke all the alcohol and drugs out and you know, and then start it all over the next day. Um, but while I was doing all that stuff, whenever we broke a string or an amplifier or something on stage, I would launch into like characters and stuff like that. And sometimes people liked it better than um, you know, than the music. So I decided to, um, you know, I got into radio, sort of by accident. A friend of mine was installing burglar alarms uh, in 1980, and he was installing an alarm at this morning guy's house. He was a morning guy on the radio. And he brought a tape of mine. I just was screwing around with a tape recorder one day, and he brought the tape over to this guy, and the guy said, tell him to come in. So I went in, and... Um, I started going in for a couple of days and calling in as various characters and stuff. And then um, there was a job opening as producer of a morning show. I don't know, there's no producer school that I know of, so I took it. I needed a job. And uh, you had to learn to splice tape and everything on those old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. And, um, you know, I used to be a guest on this little morning show every day. We'd play a game with people at home. And uh, I had to come up with a different character every day. It was fun. It was all like a lot of times you're making fun of local people. And, you know, sometimes I think the newsman at the time was Tom Brokaw. And, and we used to, uh, I'd come in there and I'd play Tom Brokenjaw, you know, because he had that, he had, he had this lateral lisp, they call it, which he couldn't pronounce L words. And he made a million dollars or so, three million a year. And he couldn't even say the word million, you know? Million. <laughs> and one day I thought he was going to have a heart attack on television. He goes, Today, publish solidarity leader. What? Well, that's a... <laughs> that was a tough one. And, um, you know, stuff like that. And then, um, I think around 1980... No, gosh, 89, I decided to move to New York. And... In 1988, I had done a cartoon. I was commuting from Boston to, uh, to Vancouver to do a cartoon for Deke, which is a, a production company called Beanie and Cecil. And it was a revival of a really old cartoon I used to watch in the 60s, you know, 62, I used to watch it. And um, he, was a, he was lovable, uh, gullible, armless, harmless, 10 feet tall and wet. It was Cecil the Sea Serpent, a name you won't forget, or Slurp you won't forget. And he'd be like, you know, uh, 
I'm coming, beanie boy. You know, he's slurp the kid and he'd be laughing. And um, it was kind of psychedelic, I guess. But um, I did that and then they they called it after six episodes. That, I, that's where I first met John Chris Belusi. He was doing uh, a beanie and Cecil. And then that just died, you know, after four episodes they pulled it. So I went back and decided to move to New York. When I get to New York, and I start working with uh, Howard Stern, you know, because I still had a job in radio. And um, that was an eye-opener because I had never seen anybody in radio act like that. I mean, this was, to me, this was an artist. I know some people get polarized by, by it or somebody says that's old school, but we used to do all kinds of crazy stuff that nobody else was doing or could get away with. And now everybody can get away with everything. So if everything's cool, that means nothing's cool. And it was time to do something else after I spent some time there. Um, it was it was great though because I learned a lot of stuff, you know. And I just loved it that Howard could just take the microphone whenever he felt like it, and you know, just hey Robin, I got a fart, you know. And, and it was like in the face of all the big shots and of all the corporate people and everything, and they're sitting there going, "What are you doing?" And um, I just thought it was great to watch them all panicking in the hallway, and I'm thinking, "What did he do? What's so wrong?" You know. Uh, you got to say the time and the temperature. Why? Everybody's got to watch now. You know, Everybody, all you have to do is stick your head out the window and you'll know it. You know. Uh, it was just staid, musty old radio rules. So uh, at that time, I had auditioned for some cartoons for um, Nickelodeon. One of them, this was back in 1990, and they were going to have a morning block on Sunday mornings, Nickelodeon, and. And Jerry Laybourne, a visionary to me, this woman that ran Nickelodeon, watched what was, what was being done by everyone else, and then she decided, you know, why don't we do what nobody's doing, which was to have cartoons on Sunday morning. And uh, they had three of them. It was Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy. And I auditioned for some, and I got like two shows, and, and the workload was like more than I ever expected. Um, Doug, I didn't do this sucky Disney Doug, by the way. I don't know. I don't know. They wanted me to do too much, and they wanted to pay me, I think, less than I made with Nickelodeon. I said, there ain't no test pilot. Take a hike. You know, and, uh, but the one I did, I, I had a lot of fondness for because he was so sweet, you know. He was, um, you know, a uh, painfully shy 11 and a half year old, and uh, this is my dog, Porkchop. Dear Diary, I went to Long Island and a whole room full of people clapped for me. And then there was the, then there was the bad kid and he was based on some, I had my own personal devil in school, you know, there was always that one kid that just like, he made it his work to come and bother me every day. And he had a pointy face and he, everything was about him came to a point, including his head. And. Uh, I forget what his name was, but anyway, the bully in the Doug show was called Roger Klotz, yeah. And he was like, you know, hey, loser, <laughs> vote for me. If you don't like it, write your congressman, <laughs> loser. And um, that was, um, you know, just based on stuff that when I went to school, everybody had somebody like that in their life. Even if it was a girl, it's like still that same, you know, bother you voice. 
and uh, and then uh, Ren Stimpy, I had auditioned for for both roles originally, and uh, again John Chris Lucy came back into the scene in, in my world, and uh, he wanted me to hire, he wanted to hire me for doing two voices for this new show, and he showed me pictures of it, and I said, "What are they?" He he said, "It's a cat and a dog." I thought they were microbes or. Is one a mosquito? What I did, I, you know, I just didn't really get it at the time. So um, he liked this voice that I used to do when we were hanging around um, when we were doing Beanie and Cecil. I was a Three Stooges maniac, and for years I watched the Stooges, and then there was nothing left to enjoy because I had seen every one of them. I knew every ream of dialogue. I knew every piece of business. So I started to look in the corners of the show whenever it came on to see if there was something I missed. You know, I, I could not pay attention to what you're supposed to be paying attention to. And I'd see Larry over in the corner. You know, Mo would be beating up Curly, and Larry would be over here and just going like... You know, and then the little that he said used to fracture me on a molecular level. It was unbelievable. He would go, hey, Mo, there's too much sensible in the tree. And I used to go, what is that voice? What is that? And I found out that he grew up in Philadelphia, and he, there was this bad plumbing that he had. And then I found out there was another guy from Philadelphia who did a cartoon character, and he had the same kind of stopped up, I don't know, sinus or something like that. It might have been a you know, mid-Atlantic thing or whatever, but uh, the guy George O'Hanlon, uh, who did George Jetson, he had the same kind of thing, you know, oh, come on, Janie, honey, the cleaner's 500 miles away. It'll take an extra five minutes just to get there. And, uh, Astro! And so Larry had this weird, weird voice, and I just, I started to imitate it, because everybody could do Mo and Curly. And, and then it just started to get attention, because I was doing it on the radio, and we did bits with just this guy from the Three Stooges that no one, why? You know? And so people started to get into it, and, um... I'd been doing it for years, but I started to really pour it on in New York when I was on the Stern Show. We did bits with him, like Larry Fine at Woodstock. You know, it's like, I said to Mo, let's trip. We have nothing to lose. I tie-dyed my hair. Don't eat the brown acid, I'm warning you. I just think uh, I love the Stooges because I found out later on to my pure joy and delight that Mo came up with the theory of relativity before Einstein did. You know, Einstein had you know, E equals MC squared. What is it? Energy equals mass times the speed of light. And Mo had, we ain't getting no place fast. <laughs> and I was like, ah! Mo. And, uh, so the, the Larry voice became Stimpy, but you couldn't have him like a depressed old Jewish guy, so we had to amp, <laughs> we had to amp him up, you know, and, and, and ramp him up to being sort of childlike and, you know, all that stuff. And so he'd be like, he was always happy and he loved everything. He just loved it that it was a beautiful day. My, what a beautiful day. Hey, Ren, will you button me? You know, so you can sort of hear the roots of that voice. And... Uh, I got a tape from John in the very beginning when I was supposed to do both voices, and uh, he had Peter Lorre on there, that old uh, German black-and-white film uh, actor. He was, I think he was German. And uh, he had this creepy kind of a voice, but when he screamed, it was like nails on a chalkboard. And uh, he'd be like, 
I watched one of those really old movies, and he was like, he comes up to a counter in a restaurant or something, he goes, I'd like a couple of hamburgers. <laughs> and to make them raw. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah. So, and then when he screamed, he'd be like, I saw that eye, the eye that was winking and blinking. <laughs> and it was just too much. And then, and then the character, uh, he wanted to have like Kirk Douglas in it and everything was so emphatic. You know, I hate criminals. And, and there was a lot of face stretching going on. So, um, and then it was, Burl Ives was a folk singer, like in the 50s and 60s. And, he had a funny kind of voice, and, and he played in the movie Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and he played a bad guy named uh, Big Daddy. And he hit some guy on the floor with a gun that was trying to mess around with his daughter, and he says, You want to act like a dog? You lie down and die like a dog! And so all these things went into this voice, plus he was south of the border, so, you know, he had like this accent that was there sometimes, and sometimes not, and sometimes Slavic. You know, it was all over the place, but it could be whatever you wanted it to be. Sometimes he has spots on his head and sometimes he doesn't. And I thought that was beautiful. You know, it was always like shifting. And so he was more like, you know, uh, you know. Hey, Ren, you want a magic nose goblin? I picked them myself. No, you idiot. You filthy fool, you fat bloated pig. You bloated sack of protoplasm, you idiot. I shall kill you. And, um, and then in the beginning when we got going, I just did Stimpy, and then after the second season, I started doing both characters again. I had, you know, they went back and listened to the audition tapes and said, you know, wasn't he doing it? And I, I didn't care, I didn't lobby for it. You know, I didn't give a fat frog's ass personally who did what, but I was having fun. And then uh, when that ran out, I, I was um, still working on the Stern show at the time when I was doing that show. And I started to get gigs, you know, like voiceover gigs. I used to get tapes in Boston because I worked in production of the big ad houses and the big voice guys and everything, big dumb announcers from New York. And I used to go, I used to listen to them, like, oh, I can do that stuff. You know, that's where it starts. You hear, you have a feeling that you want to do something that's greater than you and you aim for it, but you don't even know where to begin. You, you just check out somebody who's doing what you would like to do and eventually, you can see something that they don't do and you, you fill in the picture in your mind and say, I, I want to assume that space in life to be somebody who does something different but is there. And everybody's different. When you watch television all night, there's like, if, there, if you see 300 people on television in one night, that means there was 300 different ways to get where they got. Some come from comedy clubs, some come from Britain, acting school, Royal Academy, Shakespeare. Um, some, you know, just like took some training and got out of college and started auditioning. Um, but with me, it was great just to be a voice actor. I was perfectly happy doing that. I've been on television here and there, but everything takes forever. You know, you just wait around and wait around. Okay, okay. And, but when I recorded, I could just barrel through stuff for four hours straight. And, um, and when I left the uh, Stern show, I ran into Matt Groening who auditioned me for a show called Futurama. And, you know, he said, uh, thank you. It's my favorite show. Even if I had nothing to do with that show, I would have been a fan of it because of the writing. You know, it's just like, 
um, there was this piece of dialogue one day, and I was doing it as Fry. He's a 25-year-old pizza delivery boy, and he's not too bright, and some kid says to him, you know, hey, Fry, I heard beer makes you stupid. He goes, no, I'm doesn't. <laughs> and, I, and I read it, and I go, you sure you want this? It looks wrong. And David Cohen says, please read it as written. <laughs> I said, but I know, but it's just, just do it. You know, and I said, all right. You know, I know they're going to call me back because I, I didn't get it. And because I didn't get it, it sounded so great when it came out of the television set because it sounds like somebody who didn't have a clue as to what they were saying. Um, it was like great acting by accident. Um, yeah, so I got this role as uh, Fry. Man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, uh, he was the voice that I auditioned for, and I didn't get it at first, and then they picked me. Um, I auditioned for Bender, but, you know, Johnny DiMaggio just nailed it. He just sounded like a, a punch-drunk fighter, a guy who took too many hits to the head, and that was the perfect voice for it, you know. It's like the old, those old movies, you know. I want to shout at the champ. I want to shout at the champ. You are the champ. Oh, you know. That's the kind of mentality. And then um, Phil Hartman was supposed to do Zap Brannigan, and uh, it was Phil J. Fry was named after Phil Hartman, Phil. And um, Zap Brannigan, they really wanted Phil to do that, and then he met with that terrible fate. But I knew him. He called me when I lived in New York, and he called up just to say he was a fan. And I and I said, "Who is this?" You know, because I thought it was like Maurice Lamarche or Robbie Paulson, or Jess Harnell, because they all could, you know, imitate that. And it was him, and he just, he was on the phone for 40 minutes telling me that he was a big fan. I go, I kind of know who you are, too, you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, you ought to come out to Hollywood. This was before I moved. So I finally did, but, but by the time we were doing Futurama, he was gone. And so they tried me out for it, and... They didn't bring Zap in until a few episodes, so they were trying to figure out who was going to do that. But I did get the professor, because I saw the pictures of him, and he's 147 years old. You know, he probably farts dust like a mummy. And, uh... Oh, my. Good news, everyone. Bad news. And, um... You know, he, he's just great. He, he can't remember anything. And he's always like, you know, he's befuddled. But he always knows what to do if he gets to go to bed with some woman, you know. <laughs> no matter what age, he just somehow knows. Um, and then there was this crustacean doctor, and he had all this cool meat hanging off his face. <laughs> and I figured, you know, he said, what would you do? And I figured that it would be, um, you know, his, he, his voice would be messed up somehow. And so there's a couple of old actors that I was thinking about, and one was Lou Jacoby, a Yiddish theater actor, and he used to talk sort of like that. He always played deli owners and stuff, and, you know, I cut you this much roast beef. <laughs> Why? Because I care about your cholesterol. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then there was this guy named George Jessel. He was uh, in vaudeville in New York in the old, old, old days. And he used to have a marble mouth, too. I don't know for what reason, but I just loved it. And I, 
I heard it for so many years, and he'd be like on stage, Hello, Mama? Yes, it's your son George. From the money each week? You know, and it's like Yiddish humor, but I love that sound, and so I fused the two of them together, and it was like, Young lady, bring me a sandwich from the dumpster. And leave the maggots on it. And it all comes back to the Stooges with me, so I put a little Stooges in anything that I do, like Zap Brannigan will see something he's scared of and go, you know, and Zoidberg goes, and they go, kids who don't know the Stooges go, why does he do that? I said, you know, he's, he's just makes sounds from another world, from the 30s in America. And, um, and that was, you know, how that stuff came together. And with Zap Brannigan, when I did talk to Phil Hartman, we had that, we shared this love of big, dumb announcers. You know, all the guys in the old radio that, that loved far and away above every, everything else the sound of their own voice. You know, they used to be, uh, they loved syllables, and they loved to fill the air with their voice, and they used to swing with every pitch. They would never give you a break, so they would extend words longer. You know, they'd be like, uh, coming to the Worcester Centrum, <laughs> You know, like, just dragging stuff out. And, uh, yeah, I was talking to my wife the other night, yeah. and uh, I said, how fake is that? That's just the fakest thing I ever heard. So, uh, that's what I used with uh, Zap Brannigan. He was like one of those big dumb announcers, and he's so vain, and his sexuality is like, I don't know, you know who knows? You know, but, it, but then he's boastful, and he, he's, a, he's got such bad qualities, like, Gif, alert the men, I've made it with a woman. And, uh, and his bits of advice were so ridiculous, you know, it's like, uh, Fry, the way to a woman's heart is through her parents. Sleep with them and you're in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wound up doing those voices for the show, and, I, and we're still doing it. There's a new movie coming out in July um, called um, Beast with a Billion back, Backs, and Fry starts his own church, so that's a good start. Thank you. So, you know what, I'm supposed to get questions and answers in, but I decided I would blab half through it, so. Yes? How's that? Really? Man. Yeah? How much you get? What are you nailing down a year for watching? Videos. What? Oh, wow. I couldn't get a job like that. I had to shovel dirt. I didn't go to college, so I had to wash dishes. Jurassic Bark, yeah. I, I mean, I never, I never cried at a cartoon. You know, when, when Godzilla meets Bambi, even when the Bambi got squashed, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, thinning of the herd. And, and then when they did this Jurassic Bark, it was just, it was so sad, I can't even, like, go back to it because I start to get wistful. You know, that's probably the chick side of me, I guess. 
Any other questions? Yes? Yeah, um, of all the voice characters that you've done, which one's your favorite and why? I, I can't even tell you, I swear, because everything I've done, I just try to throw everything I got into it, even if they're peripheral roles on other cartoon shows, which I've done a lot of. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's real hard. I mean, it's like the red M and M, Honey Nut Cheerios B. It's like to me, it's all fun, you know. But uh, I don't know. I, I just really that's a tough one. I'll someday I'll post on my website, you know, when I'm in my dotage, and I can look back with agonizing reappraisal and lose my taste for living. <laughs> yes. Once they get past calling each other by their last names, you know, maybe that's an indicator, but I don't see that coming. Well, I do, I do know a couple things, but, yes? Um, it would have to be Space Madness. Yeah. And I did that big dumb announcer on that one too, you know? pushing the button that may erase his very existence. You know, that screaming announcer. Yes, sir. Yes. They don't like us. So he says, I'm not going to do it the way they do it. No, I, I, I don't know. I've heard Ren and Stimpy in Japanese. It's ridiculous. But the Japanese loved it more than anything because they love anything that's super American. You know, like, remember when the, <clears throat> the anniversary of the Empire State Building, there was this giant King Kong that they inflated and it was up there, and it hit like a uh, ingrate, you know, like a, one of those bars that curves inward so people can't get out, and it got caught on it, it started dripping over the side of the Empire State Building. And the Japanese, they interviewed this Japanese guy, and he said, this, this is the, the most American thing I have ever seen in my life. It's real big, it's real crazy, and it doesn't quite work right. <laughs> yes. I really try to stay with that script as much as I can because you got to give the writers, you know, their due. I mean, they work real hard on that stuff, and I'm not going to be arrogant and come in and, you know, try to mess with it. But when everything gets done and they say, do you want to make another pass at it, just do whatever you want, sometimes some of that junk makes it in. Yeah, you know, they want you to, to bring something to the table. So every now and then, some crazy thing gets in. Yes? How did you get involved with uh, the one episode you did for Justice League? Oh, I, I knew um, Bruce Tim, and uh, he, that was his thing. Yeah. And uh, I had known him for years, and one day he just called me up and said, why don't you come down and, you know, do this character on Booster Gold? I think it was Skeets. Yeah, the little robot. 
And I said, what do you want me to do? You got pictures and stuff? Because I hadn't seen them. He goes, no, just come down and be your, just talk like you do. You know, so that's how that happened. And then, and then people like the Skeet character. I did see it finally. I like that show. I like it a lot. Yes? Thanks. You're corrupted. <laughs> I wanted to scream for joy. You know, because it in no way resembled The Simpsons. Normally when a show gets out there and it becomes super popular, some guy will come along and, and say to the network, I got this great show, you're going to love it. And they go, but we want another Simpsons. You know, they did that to Matt when he brought Futurama to them and says, this is great, but we want another Simpsons. And he says, this is, the, it's in outer space, though. You know, how can you have another Simpsons? I can make you a show that will become a hit. Uh, they don't understand that. They want everything to be derivative. It's like music, you know, most of the top 40, the end of one song is the beginning of another, if you ask me. <laughs> and there's like seven charts, so I couldn't tell you who is the most famous artist right now in America or what the top song is. I've been sleeping for 25 years. You know, since, since groups didn't write their own material, I said, eh. You know, it used to be a little gang. I had a band. It was you guys in the cellar. And we're going to be on, uh, we're going to take over the block, and then we're going to take over the neighborhood, and then we're going to take over the city, and then we're going to go on Ed Sullivan. And all we got to do is learn how to play these things, you know. <laughs> it was a little gang. But now it's just so corporate, so cookie cutter. I don't know. I miss music. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was more difficult because it took more time than a cartoon. So singing uh, in other people's voices is hard to maintain because it's unexpected. It's not like words. It's it's verse and music and. Uh, the other thing uh, is that you can burn out easily just exerting that much. You know, like, people who can do voices, they, they can do a voice, but try to scream or cry in somebody else's voice. You know, it's like, it's hard to do. But um, I, I stayed with it, you know, it was, it was grueling. I had two women just beating my head in the whole time from Nickelodeon. Fry because that was me when I was 25, you know. So, I never went to college, and then when I couldn't be in a band anymore, I didn't know what to do. You know, I just really didn't know what to do. I, I took, you know, a day job, and I'd spend a day at that job, and I'd get another one and spend like a day there and leave, and then have my send my friend to pick up my paycheck. You know, uh, I can't, I can't go. Uh, I'd like to get my paycheck, but I'm sick. Uh, I want to send my friend Timmy. Uh, Well, nobody knew what Marge Schott sounded like. She was this racist owner of the Cincinnati Reds. None of us had heard her. Who cares, you know? It probably wouldn't have been funny anyway. But that screechy, cloying voice that wound up to be that was this woman with a Boston accent, because I grew up in Boston. And 
there was a lot of craziness and racism going on during the busing. They were going to integrate the schools. And there'd be these women, you know, that'd be screeching about how they didn't want blacks in their children's schools. And they used to march around and carry signs and they'd, you know, they'd yell at their kids, come on, put down your Budweiser's and march with me, you know? And um, this is our beach for nice white people, you know, that kind of stuff. And I actually heard <coughs> some of that dialogue and so that wound up in that character from the Stern show. But, uh, you know, I mean, I used to come off the show and feel like I had to drain the poison every now and then because four hours would go by and I'd go out on the street and i go, what did I just say? What did I say? You know, it was always organic, and it was always... And most people got it. There'd be uptight white guys always calling in. Oh, that's great. That's really great, Howard. You, you uh, have done a great job, you know, taking the beautiful mosaic that is New York and, and, and t opted to chisel out the grout so that none of us can be together. And I'd be like, ah, shut up. You know, and then a black guy would call and he'd go, I know that's Billy West. I just know it. You know, he said, you funny, man. This is a good... But, but it was like, you know, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things that you have to talk about. There isn't three kinds of people in the world. There's a zillion kinds of people, including the grotesqueness of these racists. So it was to point, them, to point up the grotesqueness of it. Well, whatever, whenever I'm screwing around, it's based on what I heard in my life and what I saw, good and bad. So, you know is less of a filter. Uh, okay. We have time for one more question, guys. Uh, what's your favorite episode? My favorite episode? The one that, <clears throat> it was the last episode of the series, but it wasn't meant to be the last episode. I think it was made in the f first or second season. But Futurama always got preempted, you know, for football, and then they shifted the nights around, and nobody could keep up with it. And that was deliberate, you know. They wanted to, they were having a little battle with Matt Groening, and, uh, and the biggest insult of all was when the promo guy came on, the big dumb announcer for Fox. You know, when he'd say, It's an evening of comedy on Fox. Starting at 7, Futurama. And at 7.30, an all-new Simpsons, followed by Malcolm in the Middle, followed by a brand-new King of the Hill. Remember, the fun begins at 7.30. Thank you very much. I'll be out there. Thank you.